Star Trek Discovery, Season 3, Episode 1, That Hope Is You, Part 1, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease. Very excited to break down everything that happened in the season premiere. And with me, as always, is my first lieutenant, Mr. Mike Bloom. Do lieutenants even matter at this point, Jess? Things have fallen. We're getting by barely with dilithium that we're able to scrape together. And Dorians and Orions are working together, getting along. Mass hysteria. We have reached the end game. Maybe. Perhaps. Well, Mike, I think I think the moral of the story is that we saved the future from control. But the future still sucks. <laughs> At least there is a future, though. I guess the, you know, it's sort of like a good news, bad news thing. I'm like, good news. There are life signs here. Bad news. The life signs are not particularly happy at this moment, <laughs> but there are life signs. Could it be that perhaps this is a part one, uh, not necessarily to imply that there's a part two, but almost to be like, there is a, there's going to be a future. You know, it's part <laughs> one of many, uh, instead of, you know, at least from my perspective, I don't know if you were similarly confused, Jess, as to why this is called part one and the next episode is definitively not called part two. Yeah, that's the, that's a very interesting thing. And I was about to say, well, what if, part two comes later like what if we mm. what if we pull up like what if that hope is you part one is the first episode and then like the season finale is that hope is you part two but i'm looking at these yeah. i'm looking at these episode titles and that does not appear to be the case no oddly enough also now i'm taking a look at this for the first time we have a two-part episode in the middle of the season episodes nine and ten are called terra firma and they're gonna be under one episode title I am very much confused about this episode naming structure. Well, yeah, and can we also talk about the fact that episode seven is called Unification Three? There's no Unification One and Two, and also it's well, I mean, not- I mean there, were, there were there were there were TNG episodes called Unification Parts One and Two, so maybe that's a sequel to this between the Romulans and the Vulcans trying to come back together. I, I think that's as possible as anything else. I mean, the Federation in this time frame has been scattered to the four winds, so maybe the Romulans and the Vulcans have no choice. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's all that's left. Hell, the, I don't know, the, the Lurians somehow made it through. I don't know if you noticed, Jess, but one of the, uh, the couriers that was chasing them was like a Morn lookalike. We actually have Lurians existing in the 32nd century. I actually have this in my note. Is one of those aliens a Morn? I couldn't remember what they're actually called, but yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And I like, I like the Easter eggs. You know me. I'm all about the Star Trek Easter eggs. Well, that being said, I mean, we have, uh, a big, big episode to get into. And I I will be completely out in saying that I, this was the most I've enjoyed Star Trek Discovery in quite some time. And there are particular reasons behind that that I want to attribute to it. But, man, I just had so much fun watching this episode. We had a million questions in our head. Some of them were answered. Some of them were left open. Some raised further questions. But there was just something about this episode. A lot of interesting choices were made. And as much as I talked about Star Trek Discovery Season 3 possibly being a soft reboot to the series, if that's the case, it's all for the better if this episode's an indicator, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this, Mike. This was just pure joy to watch from start to finish. I felt invested. It kind of pulled me in. It answered enough questions without creating so many more questions that I was just overwhelmed, which, you know, sometimes when shows do not know where they are supposed to go. They just start creating questions on top of questions on top of questions and they never answer anything or they answer one thing and raise five more. And this, this didn't do that. This, we are on a clear trajectory towards something. And I think we set up enough of this season that I feel good about the direction we're heading in. Yeah. Because I think, you know, direction is a great word for it because I think one of the things that made me appreciate this so much You know, you and I were talking offline and you brought up this really interesting point that, you know, this episode felt the most Star Wars of Star Trek Discovery. But it actually, I mean, that rings very true for me because this episode sort of did for me what The Mandalorian did for me as well and for a lot of Star Wars fans, which is that Star Trek Discovery, the first two seasons were sort of of that Star Wars movie variety specifically of like, let's bring in a sprawling cast. They all get storylines. There's big shoot 'em up action sequences and it can get a bit cumbersome and burdening. But what they did in this episode is taking the time and making the choice to have the premiere are only known 
character in this episode. We get to know Book in this episode, but really our known person coming in, and the only one we see throughout these 51 minutes, is Michael Burnham. And going so small and simple with the storytelling, despite, to your point, the sprawling world and universe they're going to have to set up, the fact that they did it through the eyes of one, only one character that we know, I think was such a fantastic choice. Not only does it help, you know, embellish the character of Michael, which I will also add that this is, I think, my favorite Michael Burnham that we have seen so far, which we will certainly get into, but it also allows us to see the world through her eyes without also needing to see it through Tilly's eyes and through Saru's eyes. This is our first glimpse at what 3188 is like and doing it through one character's eyes in interactions with specifically another character with maybe some other species sprinkled throughout, I think is a fantastic way to introduce the season. Yeah, I agree with that, Mike. And it's certainly not, there's some precedent for rolling out a season of Star Trek Discovery without actually having the Star Trek Discovery in it. Yeah, very true. Uh, this, I believe this is the only episode so far that has not had Saru. I think Michael Burnham is officially now in every single episode. But yeah, we forget that the two-part pilot, speaking of two parts, that also did not have <laughs> the same episode name, uh, were focused on the events of the Shenzhou and not on Discovery whatsoever. So this show is not afraid from the jump, to your point, with experimenting around to bringing in the titular vessel. And Discovery's presence, in my opinion, was still felt. I mean, Michael's entire mission this episode was to communicate with the ship. It's not like, oh, yeah, we'll get to those people later. It was very much in the back of her head. But we didn't need to see the entire voluminous cast of 30-plus people also encountering (laughs) life in the 3100s. Yeah, and I mean, we know we're going to see them again. We've seen the previews for the next for the next few episodes, we know that they come in and they, everybody is reunited again. But I really kind of love the idea, like, if we didn't even watch the previews, we don't know what happens to them. Maybe it's a hard reboot mm-hmm. of the entire series and we're never going to see the ship again. And it's like they're out there and we're thinking about them, but, oh, we don't have to have them. And it's the uncertainty at the end of that. We care enough about the people that we met this episode that we – that we can be on this ride for a little bit of time before we find out what happened to Discovery. Especially because, again, we also explored such a small part of the world, yet it says so much. You know, the fact that we pretty much spent the entirety of the episode on one planet, sans the trip to the transworm uh, sanctuary <laughs> at the end of it, was like a great way to introduce, you know, the quote-unquote post-apocalyptic universe, post-Federation particularly, but then also showing like how people interact in there. What does society look like? And it did need to involve like all this space travel interacting with all these different agencies. We got again, we got a little bit of that in like the last 10 minutes of the episode, but you could derive so much. I would even say not even through, you know, the, the mercantile district of it all, but the character of book, uh, now that we've officially seen him, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that he got this introduction for many reasons. I love the idea of, you know, even though, again, we're talking about uh, the risk of only putting Michael Burnham in this, the fact that she's not even the first character introduced. We first get, of course, Adita Sahil, uh, you know, going through his own like little leftovers-esque wake-up routine. But then we have Book getting in his own space fight and then getting knocked out of the sky is a, is such an interesting way to sort of show how Michael literally collides with that with his character. What was your assessment of, of Book now that we sort of at least get a sense of who he is initially through this first episode. I think he is an archetype that we see a lot in sci-fi and especially like mm. he is very Star Warsy. He is very Han Solo. He is like the, the rogue who goes outside of the law to do the thing that he feels is right. He's a little bit chaotic good. He, but we find out like at first he seems like a threat. And we know he's not going to be a threat because we've seen enough of him in all the previews and he's enough of a snack that you know that he's going to be around for a little while. Oh, yeah. And I'm also let me just say I am like captain of the Michael Burnham book ship train right now. I've been trying to put the hashtag out there, burn book as their official couple name, because even from like the minute they had that standoff on the beach, I don't know, Sonequa Martin-Green and David Ahala just like had that chemistry. Oh, yeah. You know, they had that back and forth. They are sizzling. And it it, it is, again, it's a very tropey interaction that they have where they hate each other and they distrust each other. And then they are forced to work together. And over that, they realize they have chemistry. But I'm here for it. I want this to be a season-long thing. I, you know, I enjoyed the 
Michael Burnham, Ash Tyler chemistry, but this is something different. And this is something that I think it has some real potential. Yeah, I think my looking back at it, I think something that might have been missing, because I agree that that the Michael and Tyler stuff, particularly in season one, was interesting. I think the element that was missing from them was playfulness. And that's another reason why I really like this episode is because I really do feel like despite the circumstances, there was a lot of playfulness going on in this episode. I think one of the reasons why this was my favorite Sneakwa Martin Green performance as Michael Burnham is because, to be candid, she was able to smile. I think when you make a character a Vulcan, with the exception of Spock, it is very, very tough to have fun with that character. And whether it be, you know, drug-induced or just her sort of like giving quips, I thought she was just having an absolute ball and we were by proxy. Yeah, everything about this was very fun. And I think I'm not going to be surprised when Lower Decks does a gag about there being a sitcom about Vulcans. That just seems <laughs> tailor-made for them. But mm-hmm. yeah, it is really hard to have a character who's been, you know, who's been so steeped in that environment that they can't emote. And so I did enjoy seeing her emote a little bit. And she's a little bit more open than she was in the past, for sure. But I want to back up and talk about the structure of this episode, uh, namely the the number of classic sci-fi nods we get in here. Um, starting with, we get, we go to like Star Trek's answer to Moss Eisley in this mercantile. <laughs> and they have this, like, we, we saw this in Picard. There was one of these in Picard. There's like right. 10 of them in Star, in Star Wars. But I think we obviously, we needed to have that sort of interaction to show what a lawless old West environment we are in now. And I loved that the planet that they're on, they're obviously filming this in Iceland because no place else looks like this. You got the black sand beach and you got the like the mossy, rocky landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the big waterfalls. And I think every sci-fi series has to wind up in Iceland at some point because Iceland is the most otherworldly place that you can be on Earth. I'm surprised I didn't pull a Last Jedi and like, you know, CGI'd some sort of weird creature <laughs> over the puffins. Yeah. Uh, just to like get them out of the way. Maybe they were able to shoot the puffins or film in some more desolate areas. But yeah, I mean, I think they also wanted to create like this, this sort of idea and the cinematography of like dreary desolation without it being like the desert planet for the umpteenth mm-hmm. time. So I really appreciate that change in landscape as well. Like it was gray but it had more pops of color to your point i thought the water in particular was was beautifully done and i think they just happened to benefit from you know i don't know how much more time we're we're gonna i don't think we're ever probably gonna go back to this planet considering this is just where they happen to wash up but i'll be intrigued to see what other planetary life looks like you know in the 3100s or does it happen to all look like iceland (laughs) well iceland has a lot of different kinds of landscapes it looked like literally they were in the blue lagoon at one point which mm. would, which is very interesting because that is a heavily touristed area. Um, it would be very hard to shut that down for long enough to film. And I guess if they did it in the middle of the summer, I don't remember exactly when they filmed, but if they do this in the middle of the summer, they can have daylight at 3 a.m. before it opens. So that makes sense. But also it would be kind of a shame if they shot just one episode, like they flew everybody out to Iceland to shoot that one episode. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll find themselves going back to the mercantile, though I don't think they're going to be very much welcome there, <laughs> considering that a transworm has devoured a good amount of the couriers. And I, I think they're technically wanted at this point. <laughs> I think they might technically be fugitives. Yeah, that there that is a good point. I think they show up at the mercantile again. They're going to be persona non grata. On the other hand, yeah, maybe they killed everybody that that was really had it out for them. Well, yeah, and to that point, maybe things are so lawless that like, there is low law when it comes to infamy. It doesn't matter what you did as long as you, you know, are able to deliver. And I think to your point about the mercantile, I do agree that it is, you know, the hive of scum and villainy that we've seen in many sci-fi tropes. But I guess I think it does set up an important facet that makes the 3100s different from the 2200s, which is capitalism. Yes. Uh, which is they are essentially these guys are like uh, are like Uber Eats people. You know, <laughs> they're they're DoorDash. They're delivering things from hollow sellers to hollow buyers but it seems like they are looking to make coin or dilithium in this case so yeah surprise surprise when the federation drops out the idea of you know a a cashless society and there being no scarcity in the universe has promptly collapsed as well so in other words we're gonna see what happens when libertarianism descends on the star trek universe 
Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Roddenberry would would be he'd be, he'd be loving horrified. It, I'm sure. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> in the in the world of the thirty second century, uh, Uber Eats eats you. Yeah, exactly. It's just a giant transform that hypnotizes you and then eats you. Right. And then that and then you have to pay the tip for it to digest you. Right. So you just stay in there if you don't if you don't pay a good tip. Yeah, exactly. That's how they get. That's how you get them. You just. Or I guess maybe that's more of a torture. You know, are you uh, going back to a Star Wars reference? Would you rather be in the Sarlacc pit and you know get digested over a hundred years or something, or would you rather just have it be one and done? I'm rating this experience zero stars. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we could see. You know, many other uh, post-apocalyptic things have done a rating system. I wonder if that could be brought in somehow into again the the rampant consumerism that is running in this new post-federation universe. So we got it. We go into the mercantile and they won't let you in because you're not worth more than three meow meow beans. Exactly. Uh, maybe that's what they were truly scanning for is the meow meow beans. What did you think, by the way? So I guess we should speak about like the whole post-federation thing because we were wondering what is the burn. I think we got some sort of definition of what the burn was, though, you know, again, that I think there's going to be more questions as to like, was it really it? Because even Michael brings up a great point that apparently the burn was just like a big old day when all the dilithium went kerplooey. And that includes the decimation of basically every warp capable ship ever. Uh, and, but Michael brings up like, yeah, the Federation isn't just a bunch of warp capable ships. It's like a message. Uh, but it seems like the Federation itself, like basically faded away from existence after that happened, either out of embarrassment. Maybe it's trying to hide something. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts at this moment? Well, I, I have some thoughts and, you know, if, if we're doing wacky theories, because I feel like Star Trek Discovery is just like, every time we come up with a wacky theory, we're like, no, that's yeah. too weird. That's not what it is. Like I said, I'm pretty sure the Red Angel is Michael Burnham herself. And it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ash Tyler's a Klingon. Oh, he is. Lorca is Mirror <laughs> Universe Lorca. Oh, yeah, he is. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, I'm reminded of this Red Dwarf episode. And I don't know how well-versed you are in the world of Red Dwarf, Mike. I am not. I'm more versed in Dwarf Stars than I am in Red Dwarf. Oh, it, it's up your alley. It's basically, it's like, it's like Star Wars and Star Trek combined, but very silly and British. Ooh, ooh, that sounds, you're right. This does sound yes. right up my alley. And, and it's, it's also, it, it kind of applies to a lot of the things we've seen in Discovery because the premise is that you have a guy who's a, he's like a low-level, lower-decks employee on this mining ship and he gets put in stasis and then everybody on the ship dies and the ship floats in space for a million years and then he comes out of it and he's the last human left alive in the universe and mm. his companions are a hologram of his worst enemy on the ship and then a creature that has evolved from his cat and there's an episode where the creature that evolves from his cat describes a religion that has formed over the million years where he has, his people have evolved. And the religion is around Dave Lister, the main character, getting frozen in stasis and creating the circumstances that created the cat people. And it's like mm. this sort of twisted up thing. So I'm going to go ahead and put it out there that the burn, you know, the burn also functions as a very good nickname for Michael Burnham. Yep, it's quite literally part of her last name. I'm going to say she causes it somehow. Like, the burn maybe, is Burnham. Yeah, maybe it's something where when, you know, in this, in the opening, not the opening scene, but in her first scene in the episode, when Michael lands on the planet, she sends the suit back into, you know, back through the wormhole, back into the 2200s. That's the last scene we see in Star Trek Discovery is, you know, that seventh signal pop up. Maybe when she sent the suit to self-destruct, it, like, caused something fluid to happen and it caused the burn because we don't know when the oh actually no we do know when the burn occurred the burn did not occur until about a hundred right. or so years before the events that we're currently in right now so it wouldn't have happened immediately but to your point she's got to be responsible for something right it's michael burnham right she's always responsible for something michael big burnham that it's, in star trek it's, discovery it's always her fault and it could be another one of those like umbrella academy things where by trying to change the past you end up causing the thing that you're trying to stop so right. she could, she could be finding out about the burn and she's like, well, maybe we can like manipulate time and go back and fix it. And they figure out a way to do it and then they cause it. So on that note, actually, cause I know we had also spoken about, you know, is this season going to be about the Star Trek Voyager adage of they're, they're trying to get back to the 2200s 
Or do you get a feeling after this episode that it's going to be about something completely different? It sounds to me like it's going to be more – it's going to be less about saving the people on the Discovery and more about trying to save the current circumstances they're in and trying to improve their universe. Because they they had talked about how it was a one-way trip and they were all willing to do it. And I, it seems to me that they're going to be locked into this – uh, and maybe something will happen to send them back or maybe they'll have an easy opportunity to do it. But I don't get the sense that the objective of the discovery this season is going to be get home. Um, mm. I also want to point out that we know of one ship that is warp capable that I do not believe it uses dilithium. And I think it uses spores. Oh, yeah, that's true. So maybe there is one warp capable ship that doesn't rely on dilithium. Um, yeah. That could be deployed somehow. Uh, and I know that they all, they keep saying, we're never going to use the spore drive again. And then they keep using the spore drive again. And we never say, I mean, that's yeah. the thing with also like the, the message about like fossil fuels, right? It's like you promise that there's going to be a more sustainable solution and that they just keep going back to that. Well, cause it's so much easier. I agree. I think that, you know, I mean, the, look at the title of the episode, That Hope Is You. I think right now, even though we have yet to meet the actual disco crew in this time, I would not be surprised that the whole MO of this season is like, okay, we're our mission this season is going to, we're, we're going to rebuild the Federation. Yeah. We're going to, you know, make Federation 2.0 in the 3200s because we have this guy hanging out on this rogue satellite. We have people out there who believe in this. Let's sort of, you know, uh, get the band back together in a manner of speaking and go like planet hopping to try to bring people's spirits up so they want to take part in this new Federation. It's like a goodwill mission. Yeah, I have in my notes. So without the Federation, the galaxy has descended into a lawless, profit-driven dystopia with no regard for nature and science. Sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like things are, you know, uh, rules and restrictions are set up in place for a reason, because when they fall apart, things go bad. Yeah, and it's and it's funny. I think we've talked before about how Discovery kind of inadvertently sets up the message that we really need right now. And mm -hmm. the I think we get at the end of this episode, we have Burnham talking about ensuring a future – and it's a future that doesn't resembling any, anything that anybody wants, but it exists. And she doesn't know when Discovery's getting there. It might show up tomorrow. It might show up in a thousand years. And so Burnham cannot plan for anything. And she's in this stasis point. What is she going to do? How is she going to adapt to this right. world where she could be called to do something entirely different at any point? And gosh, I know they filmed this well before all of everything happened now, but God, I needed that. I need yeah. I need to identify with a character like that. Yeah, I think it's this idea of like this might not be the future you want, but it's a future. Mm -hmm. And instead of sitting around and grousing the entire time, you make things actionable. You say, "How can I do best with the hand that I've been dealt?" And I think that's going to be Michael Burnham's mission, especially. I will be intrigued to see how how Book plays into it. You know, there was that final shot of her and Sahil and Book standing side by side with the flag. Obviously, Sahil is all in on the Federation. Yeah. He's the Federation's number one guy in the year 3188. I don't know about Book. Like, Book seems to be this weird, like, Robin Hood type who seems to steal from others if it, you know, serves an environmental course. Do you think, he, from what we know of him so far, he would be someone to help her on that mission? Or do you think he's going to go off on his own again? Well, I think he's kind of – he managed to take care of the thing he was doing this episode. He doesn't have a next project as far as we know. And it also would be great for him if they managed to bring back the Federation because the Federation cared about stuff like that. So yeah. I think it does behoove him to help her out. And plus, he's kind of into her. Uh, well, I, you bring up a great – They haven't. Yeah, you bring up a <laughs> – not yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That might be awkward with that cat watching. Yeah. Uh, does bit. Grudge automatically make the Mount Rushmore of Star Trek pets one episode in? Um, well, what's the Mount Rushmore of Star Trek pets? There's Spot. Spot. There's, there's uh, Archer's dog. Yeah, Porthos. Mm -hmm. And there's – yeah, I, I don't know who else is on that Mount Rushmore. Yeah, exactly. So I think by default, Grudge is up there. And we're not talking like, you know, non uh, – maybe you take the dog from Star Trek Lower Decks might be up there from its one episode <laughs> appearance just by default. Um, so, yeah, it might not automatically make it, though I hope we get some more cat-based humor later on. But to that point, I think you make a great point about, like, 
the Federation standing for something that Book wants, because we find out, again, some dimension from this character immediately that he is an animal lover, in that it seems like whatever species he is, he is humanoid, but whatever powers he has that allows him to connect with nature in general, I could imagine that anti-environmentalism of the past century has probably hurt him profoundly. And so I can imagine that, you know, if it's just, hey, if we bring back the Federation, there'll be endangered species acts again. He's like, great, sign me up. I don't want to feel the deaths and, you know, injuries of any more animals in this universe. This is a new type of character. I mean, we've had Troy, who's kind of an empath herself, but we've Mm -hmm. never had, we've never had a character who seems to care that much about animals. And you have a lot of humanoid species that connect with each other. And Star Trek has almost always been about humans in otherworldly situations where they haven't had to care too much about the environment. And sometimes you get that one episode where, like, you find the last humanoid person living on a planet and they don't want to leave. Or you have to save a species from a terrible disease or something. But you really never get people interacting with beings that are not that are not like as sentient as humans. Right, things that can't really talk back right. to you, or at least speak the language that we understand. It's clear that, you know, I think Book maybe has some sort of psychic communication with the animals or maybe just has the ability to summon them. And almost I thought he was like a waterbender for a second yeah. when he first, you know, had the plant come out of the water to give Michael some aloe. Uh, so it's it's an interesting new thing. Maybe this is a thing from, you know, going back to like, uh, you know, the the Enterprise and even the DS9 of it all of like, maybe this is eugenics happening, generations upon generations of genetic manipulation. Though it does seem like book situation. So he said he what well, he came from a planet where his family were all like poachers and hunters and he was the black sheep of the family uh because he believed in the exact opposite. Right. So is that just like a a genetic anomaly on its own? I think he probably doesn't believe in the poaching and hunting because he has this genetic anomaly. So when he says like every so often someone like me is born and it throws a wrench into all of it, I think you couldn't have this ability and still like get off on killing things. So I'm going to guess that he just has to choose a different path because it is not something that is open to him to go and kill things and like have to feel all their suffering. Mm, I wonder if all of his missions have been, you know, animal based or if this just happened to like he heard that this guy Cosmo had this transworm, you know, uh, delivery that was going to be eaten and he decided to sort of hijack it. It kind of seems like he has this specialty, like he's he's like going around rescuing animals. Um, mm. it, it seems like that's sort of his objective in life, which is you kind of need a specialty. You can't just be like a smuggler of everything. Yeah, I think that makes sense if he has like, I mean, you know, he also knows I, the transform stuff was also very like, particularly when they were swimming together was very like fantastic beasts and where to find <laughs> them, in my opinion, when they go into like that little sanctuary within the the briefcase. But I think it also helps that he knows their danger too. Like, I don't, it's interesting. I, I don't know if Book really ever felt like he could be in danger because he knew that transworms are extremely deadly on their own. And all he needs to do is just like know the right stuff and not look at that particular moment and he'll be fine and his enemies will probably be dead as a result. I had kind of two pop culture things that I was reminded of. One of them is obviously when they open the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders. Mm-hmm. No look. Yeah, you know exactly when not to look. And the other thing, it reminded me a lot of when Spock mind melds with the Horta mm. to bring it back to the original series. And it was sort of like they thought this thing was dangerous. And then Spock gets to talk to it in a way that nobody else can. And he discovers that it actually it's pretty intelligent and it has some opinions on what is what it is going through at the moment. I just realized that book is essentially if. Star Trek four were a person. <laughs> That's why I like, like it so much. I think like an animal lover who's edgy and like a little wisecracking. Like he would definitely say double dumbass on you. Like I, 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 now I'm starting to realize it. And I agree. I love that movie. That makes me very happy. That's, that's what, that's the other, that's the reason I liked this so much. It was like the Mandalorian crossed with Star Trek four. Yeah. You know what it really was? And I think it worked, it worked so well, but it is this like, I mean, no offense to Pedro Pascal, but I think their lead in, in Star Trek Discovery was so much more emotive and enjoyable as sort of like she was still a blank slate, 
but she still got to do amazing things. I just loved, even outside of, again, the drug strip stuff, which is a fantastic bit of comedy. I loved when she landed on the planet and she does the check for life science and she just yells out this like guttural, (laughs) visceral scream of joy that she did it. And that was the first indicator to me that like, okay, this is a new Michael Burnham. Like, yes, she is as self-sacrificial and obviously the character from the first two seasons hasn't gone away, but like, She's a little looser, I think, in a way. Maybe getting away from the Federation has has put that into her. But there was just that one moment that almost made me scream in joy, being like, damn, we, we get to see this side of Michael Burnham now that doesn't just, like, peek through in drips and drabs in previous episodes. She, she was able to feel her whole self this entire time. Yeah, she's going to really, I think she's going to be letting it all hang out this season. I think it's a very different Michael Burnham we're getting. But whenever a character does that, you have to ask yourself, is that a logical thing for them to do in the moment? And I think in this case it is, but it's a hard thing to do. And I'm going to be curious to see if they can keep it up. Like, is this the same Michael Burnham Mm. we know just being affected by things around her and evolving as a character because of it? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, I do think that the Vulcan side of Michael did not necessarily come out this episode. Uh, that being said, I didn't mind it. Maybe it's just because we've seen two seasons of the Vulcan side of Michael that I was I was ready again for that human side to really come through when really the human side had only come out when it came to like interacting with Ash Tyler or interacting with her family. Why do you think is is there a plot hole of her setting the suit through the wormhole, but not herself in the suit? Is there a reason why she couldn't have gone back through? Well, I think isn't there. I I thought there was a reason that she couldn't send the suit like she like the suit that there was something that she had to keep with her so that control couldn't have it. Like the whole reason she was going through the wormhole in the first place was to get rid of the stuff. Yeah, so that was in uh, Discovery. So Discovery has all the sphere data that controls after Michael just opened the wormhole using the Red Angel technology to have Discovery go through. Is that the only way that she can send a signal back is so when they see the... Yeah, I wonder, maybe it was a wait thing, because I do agree that she actually said that line in the finale, that like, oh, it's a one-way trip, which is why she decides to go, and then Discovery eventually decides to go with her. But I'm trying to remember if there was any sort of like science-y, y-n-c-y explanation as to like why she couldn't go back, even though she was very easily able to send that suit back in the last few seconds. Well, the suit was had its self it had self-destruct sequence enabled. So I think the suit was not supposed to go again. She was just creating that seventh beacon. That's why the suit had to go through because she was creating another beacon. Right, because then I guess it would be a paradox if, right. if she didn't because they found seven beacons, you know, right. scattered throughout the universe at the beginning of season two. Yeah, there's that was the seventh beacon. And then I think the suit destructing was the next thing. Like you can't have the suit hanging out there in case it might create future beacons. You know what I just realized as well as I was, I was randomly going through my notes here is uh, so obviously dilithium is, seems to be like the currency of the universe, which makes sense when a whole bunch of it blows up, there's going to be a scarcity of it. But we know of a ship that in the finale came into technology of essentially like a dilithium recrystallizer that allows you to essentially produce, you know, uh, unreplenishable uh, or completely replenishable dilithium. And so that's another reason why Discovery, despite being, you know, 900 years behind the trend in terms of technology, is actually sort of perfectly applicable to the time that they're finding themselves uh, finding their way into. Yeah, they kind of have they had to have two things that the Federation is going to be interested in. They got the spores and they got the dilithium recrystallizer. So is that going to be like the Genesis device? Like, is that going to help recreate what they need to be um, to revert once again to a cashless utopia? Yeah, I mean, it could be a thing where, you know, I I think there was discussion, right, of like back when the spore drive was really a big thing before it got erased from the can and was like, oh, yeah, we're going to create a bunch of. We're going to put this in a bunch of different ships so we can utilize it for, you know, offensive purposes, for weapon purposes. So I can imagine that there there might be something similar happening here. The problem is there is not a flagship organization to do so in a big fashion. This could just be like, hey, you happen to find a person on a planet who can put this in a couple of ships and then they put it in a couple of more ships. And it just sort of it's like a giant pyramid effect. It's like Johnny Appleseed. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's sort of I, I honestly think that's a great comparison. I think Discovery might be like this. This is the Johnny Appleseed season. And from that perspective, maybe things become a bit more episodic than we've gotten beforehand. Once the two come together, if they spend an episode like going to a planet, trying to rehabilitate them, bringing them, them back on board the cause, and then they leave and then go to another one, that could be an interesting way to spend a season. It could, Mike, but I'm going to say that's not what's going to happen just because we have thought that was what was going to happen in the past, and it wasn't. I think last season, if there was going to be an episodic, like, monster of the week situation, having seven signals set up across the galaxy was the way to do that. And we thought at one point that was what it was going to be. It's like every week we got to go deal with a different signal, and clearly they're building us towards something, but, you know, we have to, like – Highway to Heaven, Michael Landon ourselves to each thing and help the people that need the help. And it turns out that's not what it was at all. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I remember the the first four episodes we covered was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. Like, we're going to a different planet each time. Then it was, oh, no, they all went there for a reason was to have all the, these circumstances together in order to make this specific scenario happen. So maybe the same thing happens here. We're like, a la season two, we get a final battle at the end of season three. We're like, the people from episode four come in with the people from episode six. And wait, who's that behind them? It's the people from episode 10. They're here with an artillery to take down whoever the big bad is. So if basically, there is a big bad this season. Yeah. So basically, it's a Game of Thrones style ending. It could be. It very well could be. And who better to sit on there than Discovery the Broken? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um it's sort of it's sort of like a royal rumble. Like they all just start rolling yeah. up. And, huh. Exactly. I guess speaking of uh, I guess miscellaneous people from the thirty one hundreds. What what do you think about you know our our friend Adita Sahil? Because I know that uh, Adil Hussein was going to make an appearance here. Do you think he's going to become a recurring character? Because I feel like Disco is usually very tight lipped with like. Some people will last one episode. Some people like a Jet Reno will appear in like four or five episodes in the season. But we have no bearing as to what's going to happen. I mean, we have Wikipedia. True, but I don't know. You know, when they say guest starring, I or, you know, we have recurring. But I guess that means in what capacity do we think recurring means for him? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think but I think we've kind of set him up pretty nicely to be someone that he has a role and he has a purpose. and. I think if it was going to be something pretty small, you would have had him killed at the end of this. Like, oh my mm. God, my life's purpose is fulfilled. Now I can die. Um, <laughs> but I think he is, he's going to be a linchpin to a lot of things because we're going to need him to, we're going to need him to introduce us to the Federation in a more deep level, especially when the rest of the Federation shows up. Right. Here's my prediction. And Jess, You got this in my head since we talked Star Trek Picard earlier this year. I I can't get out of my head that Sahil might be a hologram. That's a good point because everything we've seen of him, like everything he has is a hologram. Yeah, and which was an interesting thing. I did love the uh, like the tropical bird alarm clock. Uh, And I guess it was meant to show sort of like the 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 rut he's gotten in for, I guess, 14 years. But I just have so many questions if he was indeed living on this abandoned station for 14 years. Namely, where do you get food well, <laughs> is, is yeah. my main thing. Well, unless like, you have a replicator. But oh, yeah. Well, I wonder if there's a working replicator because it does seem like I don't know. The station from the outside seems so derelict and broken apart but to your point once they get inside they're like it seems okay yeah uh, so maybe he just happened to end up on a good section good habitat ring that had enough stuff to keep him going for 14 years yeah that that would be my guess although the fact that he sleeps on a bed that's made of hologram with an alarm clock that's made out of hologram and he cleans himself up like we know they do sodic showers and whatnot but right it's it seems to me we wouldn't see that hygiene thing if he was a hologram. But on the yeah, other unless hand, he, unless he was really committed to, unless he was data like, and he's like, I want to be as human as possible. That seems like a little bit of a, that seems like a hard thing to explain away and an unnecessary piece of information that we were given if he is a hologram. But on the other hand, I thought about this a lot. Like the, the thing that got stuck in my head watching that sequence was, well, why doesn't everybody sleep on a hologram bed then? Like, mm. is it, is it like more power to maintain that and have it be comfy? Because it seems like that you'd save you a lot of space if you just like 
reconfigured your ship to have walls and beds, and then you could take it all down. Like, you don't have to have permanent living quarters. Everything you have could be a hologram, but that seems like it must take a lot of energy. Right. And you could also say, this is like what you talked about before with, you know, why is why are some people in Star Trek franchise so obsessed with like relics of the 20th century? Maybe it's just like sometimes you like things the old fashioned way, you know, nothing beats sleeping in a good old solid bed and not one that's made out of holographic nanites that can change into anything at the snap of a finger. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is if he's a hologram, we don't have to see him sleeping unless it's mm. like one of those Blade Runner things where he doesn't know he's a hologram. That's what I was thinking, too, that, like, you know, he talks about how, what, that it, that the Federation has been in his family for generations. Maybe his father was sort of like how the doctor, you know, was uh, the person who programmed him, looked the same as him. Maybe, uh, you know, Adita Sahil's father is the one who created the hologram, and he looks exactly like him, and he just died 100 years ago and left him aboard the station. You're, you're not saying there's going to be, like, six versions of him that all speak with a different accent? No, thankfully not. Thankfully, they're not going to put Adil Hussein through all this, you know, prosthetics and CGI makeup or the evil version of Sahil comes aboard to actually stop the Federation from happening. And I don't think we're going to get a family tree out of the Sahils, at least not this season. No, I mean, we'll we'll keep going with it. We'll see where the we'll see where the season takes us. But yeah, I think he's a real guy. I think he I think it's interesting that I think he's more akin to the to the Grail Knight in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like he just kind of sits around waiting for something to happen. Yeah, I could see that of like, now she's chosen wisely then, I guess, in selecting him because again, he is like the Federation super fan. He's not technically a member yet. And I'm good on him for following protocol. Like the Federation is gone, but he's like, uh, I, I don't want to tempt myself. I'm still not technically part of it. I ha I'm not going to hang up this flag until <laughs> someone walks through here and allows me to do it. Yeah, but couldn't his dad have sworn him in? Like, was his dad a Federation guy? I would assume so, because he says that the flag belonged to his grandfather, right? So, like, my assumption is, unless his dad was like, screw this, screw this. Uh, no, it looks like he, I'm reading the Memory Alpha thing now that, yeah, his his dad was uh, was a Starfleet officer as well. So maybe there's like some kind of Starfleet protocol where you can't sign, you can't swear your own kid in. Yeah. Like it's nepotism. It has to be someone who doesn't have the same last name as you. Right. It has to be someone you're not related to just so there's nothing hinky about it. Yeah. You don't want, you know, to keep it outside the family, get involved with as much federation as possible. Otherwise it's going to get too insular, too incestuous with the, with the swearings in of the federation members. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like it's a bad idea to be serving on the same ship as your parent, and Lower Decks does not dis disabuse me of that notion. Right, exactly. No, for some reason, they keep doing it again and again, even though it is proven that it's not a good idea. Right, right. So and maybe, maybe just don't do that. Do we have any thoughts about, because I know the Federation flag has a couple of stars missing. I can't remember, does the flag represent, like, specific species slash planets i don't so it's like think almost so. like a 50 stars 13 stripes type of thing i don't think it does because there's a lot of oh maybe it does i'm looking at the original like there's there's a federation flag that's got like a hundred stars in it and then there's one that's got just four and then there the one that hung up at the end of the episode has six mm. and there there was a reference to a species Quitting the Federation. This episode wasn't there. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Or there was also a reference to the Gorn, I think, becoming surprisingly not only adept, but alive in the 32nd century and like causing, you know, wiping out all this technology. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, the Gorn are responsible for everything. Apparently, they're not just, they're no longer, you know, karate chopped pushovers. Now they're really like destroying shit. Well, they got mad when those people messed up their wedding. Yeah, and that was the that was the linchpin. That was like the big set to be like, you know what? Screw humanity. Let's destroy all this subspace. We're we're Gorn. We can live on our own rocky planets. Let's give them a taste of what we're going through right now. Right. Yeah, I do not think that it is a literal representation of how many different how many different species have joined the Federation at any one time. I think at a point there's just like I think it's a stylistic choice because at a certain point you had species joining the Federation left and right. Like you had uh, mm. that whole thing like leading up to Bajor joining and, and there, there's always a, 
the every every new iteration of Star Trek. It's like here's a bunch of other species. Like we haven't seen those guys before, but they've been in the Federation a long time. So I think it's not like a new state and a new star. Yeah, so I'm looking on a ScreenRant.com article that actually talks about the, the flag itself, and they said that the initial flag represents, you know, each member of the 150 plus strong block, but specifically there are three big stars that represent Vulcan, Earth, and Andoria, which were sort of like the founders of the Federation. And if you notice the flag in Star Trek Discovery, there are only two big stars. And it does also beg the question if there are Vulcans that are still around in the 32nd century, how is that going to affect Michael Burnham, considering that was where she was raised? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, And we see a lot of Andorians this episode. So Yeah, it's true. Do we think that the Vulcans have gotten wiped out, or do we think that the Andorians quit? I don't know. Well, we're getting Unification 3, so I think there's got to be at least some Vulcan storylines there. Maybe the Vulcans joined up with the Romulans, and the Romulans left the Federation. And so now the Vulcans were sort of like dragged outside of the outside of the Federation to no part of their own. The Romulans were never in the Federation. No, exactly. But it's sort of like, hey, if you want to join with us, you're out of the Federation. I like how this Screen Rant article makes reference to Frexit. Oh, I love that. I wonder, no, I would say that they probably wouldn't call it that. I think they're while well, they want to do timely events, they don't want to be that on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, but it looks like it's I mean, according to according to what we have learned about the Federation this episode, there are still active Federation ships out there. There's like mm-hmm. two of them, but they have no idea if there's others out there. It's kind of it's sort of like the um Kevin Costner movie, The Postman. Like, there's allegedly mm. this postal service. We don't know everybody else that's in on it, but we assume they're all out there. Right. It's sort of like the honor system of, like, we have no way to communicate. Because otherwise, Sahil would sort of be like an air traffic controller, right? Being able to communicate with these ships. But otherwise, it's like, well, I know the Federation's gone, but, like, let's keep going out there and doing good. And maybe one day we'll run into some other Federation people. Yeah. But we'll just keep doing what we're doing. That ship went out there to do stuff, and I'm sure they'll call me when they can. But other than that... You would think you'd want to set up relay stations. Like, that would be kind of yeah. your next priority. But yeah, Though I think, I guess, didn't Sahil say that, like, for some reason, long-range scanners went down for, I don't know, maybe it was when the station got destroyed, and so it's, it's tougher to do. Do you think that, that Burnham is going to try to make contact with these couple of ships that are in the, the quadrant? I don't know if Burnham will, but I think once Disco gets back into the picture, I think they will. Yeah, I mean, that's very easily, right? Like, they have the Federation insignia. They could very easily, though maybe much like with Michael's stuff this episode, they'll be like, that's a relic. Where'd you get that thing? What are you doing running around in that old jalopy for? Well, you know, the number of times that we have seen time travel in the Star Trek universe, people sure seem shocked when it happens. It's yeah, well, like, I mean, they they did make mention of the temporal cold wars from Enterprise this episode. Yeah, it's like you had a whole war about it. You know it's possible. Why are you so freaked out when someone shows up? Like, they could be from anywhere. And you know time travel is theoretically possible. So why is it such an impossibility in your mind? Do you think uh, – so you think that Book should have jumped to that conclusion sooner than he did in the episode? Um, I think he should have. I think he should have figured it out. Like the second he saw the Federation uniform, he knew what it was and he knew mm-hmm. it was archaic and people think it's kind of stupid. So he should have been like, oh, you're cosplaying someone from another era, are you? Oh, wait. No, you're by yourself. You don't have, you don't have a ship. You don't, you're just carrying a bunch of antiquated technology. You're either really committed to the bit or you're a time traveler. I would like to see those that really do. I guess it is, is it like the Civil War reenactors of the 3100 to people being like a long time ago? I'm going to dress up like <laughs> Captain Kirk from back in this era. Because, uh, yeah, I guess it, I mean, book did talk about that type of stuff. It seems like people are into antiques. But to your point, if that is not a real circumstance that some people live at, you could very easily be like, yeah, you don't know what's going on. You're dressed like authentically out of that era. It's very clear you're probably a time traveler, even though this stuff is outlawed. Yeah. Like if you were walking down the street, Mike, and you ran into a guy that was wearing a powdered wig and pantaloons and a coat with a lot of fancy buttons on it, and he had wooden teeth, and he's like, I say, sir, uh, you know, what is the year of our Lord? 
you'd be like, okay, you're either nuts or you're a time traveler. Yeah, listen, it depends. Like, if he's in New York City, I would be like, the East Village is, you know, just get on the 6 and you'll get there. good Um, point. But I think, yeah, otherwise, if it was just down the street, like, in suburbia, then, yeah, you'd be like, yeah, you're probably a time traveler or you think you are yeah. in which case i need to i need to have a conversation with you to make sure you're okay man this is a this is a prank that i feel like in the before times i feel like somebody should have pulled it yeah exactly i think unfortunately masks do not go with a lot of cosplay i think the mask would give it away that you are not a time traveler right unless there's some kind of historic costume like could you be an old west cowboy and tie a bandana around your face over your mask or be a Renaissance era uh, plague doctor and wear the big beaky mask. They, and that's that's timely too. Like we should bring yeah. that back. That's that's a style that could come back into play. Or you could be a knight and you could just wear your full suit of armor. All right. So I think there is still a possibility to do time travel pranks uh, if and when you know people are really able to be back on the street socializing. So. Keep that in mind, uh, because not everyone is as slow on the uptake as Book, and they might <laughs> be able to, you know, actually believe that you are indeed a time traveler. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be hard to, I think it would be hard to convince Book, because clearly time travel was like number 999 on his list of possibilities. But mm. anybody else, especially in a world, I, I think it maybe goes over a little well in a world where time travel is theoretical. It's it's a thing that that is possible. I mean, here I think we're kind of committed to the idea that time travel is not a thing, right? And to be to be fair to book, he was someone who was so resolute in the, his first conversation with Michael of like, don't tell me anything, you know, I don't want to hear anything about it. And I think it was less about being rude for him as much as like, you know, I deal with so many people, or like, I you're gonna die, and I I don't want to empathize <laughs> with you because my heart has broken too much. So maybe he just didn't even want to pay Michael that much cause of mind, except for he looked at her and just saw dilithium in his eyes that he was going to manipulate her and get all of her, you know, nice little cosplay gear to to pawn yeah. off. That's that's probably true, but it's also like if we had that conversation now, we wouldn't get to have the rest of the plot. Mm-hmm. It's one of those exactly. Yeah, and I think it also asserted from the beginning of like, ooh, book is super mysterious and individualistic. But I think by the end of this episode, it's like, oh yeah, he's a, he's like a he's a very charitable guy. He's just maybe a little misunderstood. But the dude has a cat, you know. He can't be all gruff. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, that's how you know he's a good guy because he's got a cat. On the other hand, my counter examples would be Ernst Blofeld and Doctor <laughs> Evil and Doctor Claw. I feel like those guys have cats and they're not good guys. I would say maybe how about if you have cats in the future uh, okay. from like the 2200s on you are good. Uh, they, the cat person has come around because, yeah, I agree. I think when you're comparing it to this day and age, it can be a little tough uh, when it comes to the company you keep with animals. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think it's also how you treat your cat. Like if you treat it like an ornament mm. and you just kind of pet it in your lap, that's different from if it's you're like interacting with it and feeding with it and, and making sure it doesn't get on the furniture or whatever he was doing. Yeah, it really just seemed like he picked the cat up, made his little quip about, you know, she's heavy and she's mine, and then put it down again. So hopefully some more grudge love moving forward uh, instead of it just being like a decoration on the set. There's a great scene in the preview of Grudge and Tilly interacting, and I can't wait to see that happen. Oh, that's going to be great. Plus, and there was a beautiful photo. I think the promo photo of Book had like him with grudge around his neck. So I'm, I think we're going to get some more some more grudge stuff. She just had to be introduced, you know, in a couple of scenes. And, you know, good thing Cosmo's dead because he threatened to feed grudge to uh, to some aliens if, you know, he, he came into contact with Book again. So luckily, grudge is safe for another day. And I can't wait to see more grudge. Can't wait to see more Book. Can't wait to see more Michael. Can't wait to see more Discovery, Jess. I yeah. can't say enough about how much I really enjoyed this episode and how I I really hope this is an indicator of where the season's going. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost, they did do another hard reset. I feel like you could come into this season. You didn't have to watch the first two. And that is hard to do because so much weird stuff has happened. Like we kept, I kept forgetting tiny details and, and like, how did that, how did we come to this point? And where was Mm -hmm. the sphere data? And you don't need to know any of that to have a really good time with this. I think if you have the bare facts of what the Federation is and what Star Trek is, you could come right into this and it would be fun. 
Yeah, just watch the previously. I think the previously one did an okay job of, again, to Jess's point, maybe not getting into the nitty gritty. It's like, okay, what is where? But at least summing up the basics as to what has happened. So hopefully, I mean, I don't know if people who are listening to this just jumped into Star Trek Discovery, but you're okay for right now. But if you feel like you're confused, we'll be here to remind you and explain to you certain things that have happened will happen, have happened in series past. We are going to be your guides, your own envoys uh, through this new world of 3188. Yes, indeed. And I, I had one more observation because we're just listing off pop culture properties left and right. I did like the little nod to Shawshank Redemption because if you have little short pithy sentences about what hope is, I am choosing to consider that a reference to the Shawshank Redemption. Um, I'm really happy when Michael crashed on that planet. She had to have to crawl her way to Book's ship through like two, you know, miles of <laughs> Raw transworm dung. Yeah. Ooh. Yikes. And you know, those things eat anything. So it'd be a little bit dire. Speaking, yeah, speaking of pop culture references, actually, just one more quick thing, because I did notice there has been some discourse about this. Jess, were you familiar with the aborted project of Star Trek Federation from back in like the, the mid aughts? I was not actually. I I had heard I had been like deep into the like various projects that Roddenberry tried to pitch in the in the seventies, but I had not heard about this Star Trek Federation. Yeah, because yeah, because what you were suggesting I think was sort of the prequel, right, to yeah. the events of TOS, which was like what became Star Trek 2009, which was Kirk and Bones and Spock and Starfleet Academy. But after uh, Star Trek Enterprise's cancellation, uh, Brian Singer was brought on to try to produce this new star idea of called Star Trek Federation back in like 2005 or so, I think, where it essentially now takes us into the year 3000 that shows a period of decline with the Federation and then like a rebirth through, uh, you know, a new ship that has come. So essentially, it's, it's again, getting the band back together and reinvigorating the the Federation. I also think, uh, I believe, uh, Andromeda, which was a show that Gene Roddenberry yep. had worked on in the vein of Star Trek, is sort of That's, a very similar yeah. thing. Well, that came out of one of those Roddenberry pitches. Um, and the, the other thing that came out of that was, like, Riker, the character, was supposed to be in, like, this Star Trek Phase Two series. Like some of it went to Andromeda and some of it ended up in next gen years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, so I think that, you know, it's, while it is very much new territory in terms of Canada, it it is interesting that they're sort of going back to the well with these ideas. And for those freaking rabble rousers that are like Gene Roddenberry would hate what they're doing with modern day Trek. They're using his ideas in a certain respect and using them in new ways. So screw off people. Yep. You can just go straight into the gullet of the transworm. <laughs> exactly. And no tip for either one of you. <laughs> nope. Zero stars for you. All right. So, Mike, I think that takes us to the end of our recap. Is there anything else that you want to share with the class or anything you want to tell us about what else you're working on? Yeah, so here on Post Show Recaps, got a lot of irons in the fire. Of course, Josh Wickler and I are going down the hatch each and every week. Actually, talking some more cats, we talk about uh, Enter 7-7, which is the introductory episode of Mikhail, not Burnham, uh, and also the cat, Nadia's. A lot of cats this week, so be sure to check that out. Also, Josh... Myself and Chappelle, the great uh, one of the great new standouts of the RHAP class of 2020, got together to do a Brant Steel for Avengers Endgame. We part one is out right now, and yes, part one. We just recorded part two, which should be out in a couple days. So if you're if you're you know want a Brant Steel itch that has yet to be scratched uh, with Survivor's absence from the past few months, be sure to check that out. Uh, Jess, I'll, I can have you cover the the amazing race side of things since I know you and I are, are helming that over on RobHasWebsite.com as well. But I'm also doing Big Brother stuff there too. And Star Trek Rise Wise, I am writing about it for CBR.com, writing recaps, breakouts, interviews as they come. So if you're into taking in as much Trek as you can, including, you know, before we record this podcast on the weekend, be sure to check all that out. I usually schlep out everything I'm doing at a Mike Bloom type on social media. Yep, you're one of the busiest guys I know, Mike, and it's been very fun. Uh, we've had a lot of time together this week, Mike and I have, because yeah. we also uh, we are doing two weekly series uh, about the Amazing Race every week. So we're doing a straight episode recap with Rob Sesternino, uh right after the episode airs, and then we are starting something new this season on Rob Has a Podcast called The Tar Pits, 
where we mm-hmm. are going to just cover, we're going to cover listener feedback. We're going to talk to the team that got voted out. We're going to have some fun and games. We're going to have special guest stars, interviews with past racers. It's going to be kind of a catch-all uh, amazing race experiment, but it's a little bit more fun than what we have done in the past. And what we've done in the past has been pretty darn fun. Yeah, it's sort of like is if the recap is like the Federation, this is more the mercantile and that's more loose and dirty and more of a hodgepodge. But there is still a lot of fun to be had. Yep. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of helpless giggling as we uh, give people the unvarnished truth of what we think about the amazing race. Exactly. That spray is just in the air. So we're constantly giddy at all times with all the stuff we have to talk about. Yep. It's it's like a miasma. Um, to be sure. And then also over here on Post Show Recaps, Josh Wiggler and I are recapping both of the Walking Dead spinoff series uh, in a show that we call Fear the Walking Dead World Beyond. And Chappelle joined us for that as well, because it, your podcast isn't cool unless Chappelle has been on it. That is, I, sure. I love this idea that just you you have like a stranglehold on like post quote unquote, like futuristic post apocalyptic fiction in Post Show Recaps right now. Well, you know, Mike, that was my jam for a lot of years. I was super into that genre. And now I kind of regret having been so super (laughs) into that genre because there are shades of every single thing from Stephen King's The Stand to Octavia Mm. Butler's Parable of the Talents. And I am kind of helpless to stop any of it. So I I feel like maybe this is an area of expertise I could have given a miss to. But on the other hand, it is a lot of fun to be podcasting with you and podcasting with Josh and talking about all of the things that rely on this deep well of knowledge. So there is that. (laughs) Yeah, well, listen, in a pop culture full of hopelessness, that hope is you. So I'm happy to have (laughs) you here to, to serve as like the beacon through all of the direness that might exist within these dark and dreary worlds. Let's just hope I don't initiate my self-destruct sequence anytime soon. <laughs> never, never. You're that. You're an angel, but not that type of angel. Indeed, indeed. So I want to also give a shout out to all of our new patrons over at Post Show yeah. Recaps. We are having such a good time. It is really great. I feel like Post Show Recaps, we have a feedback line, um, which is apparently not working right now. So we will tweet out the feedback address once we have it working again. I heard that we got a bounce on it. But anyway, we get some feedback from our, from our listeners, but we've never really gotten to deeply interact with them in quite the way that we do now in our patron discord. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to everybody that that patronizes us on every level. If you go to postshowrecaps.com slash Patreon, you can find out what you can do to support us and helps keep us keep the lights on here for us at Post Show Recaps. And you also get some cool perks, including extra podcasts and you get a newsletter. And at the $15 a month tier, you get actual swag, including a Wiggler's Wombats hat and other forthcoming merchandise. It's basically like the subscription box of post-show recaps. Um, so I highly recommend you check out everything that you can get there, and it has been well worth it. We are up above 300 patrons at this hour and Ooh. counting. And once we hit 500, we're unlocking another weekly podcast, which I am very, very hyped about. And it has been just a delight to welcome the new patrons in and really get to interact with the patrons on a level that we've really never done before in the Post Show Recaps realm. So I highly recommend all of that. And once again, that is postshowrecaps.com slash Patreon to find out all of the gory details about all of that. (laughs) Yeah, if you have the dilithium, the funds to be able to do so, we would greatly appreciate it because all of the the money from Patreon goes to helping support the stuff that we are all working on here in Post Show Recaps and making sure that we are hopefully keeping some entertainment in your ears for years and years to come. And in particular, a, a big benefit of the Discord is we have special channels dedicated to show discussion and channel discussion. So after you watch Star Trek Discovery, you can hop into the Star Trek Discovery channel and give your thoughts days before we record the podcast. And Jess and I are very frequently in the Discord. We're always happy to strike up a conversation. So to Jess's point, like there is social media, of course, that we can talk to you on, and there is the feedback line. But Discord has almost unlocked a new level of access where we can all just really get nerdy 
about movies and television, and it has been an absolutely sublime time. So again, if you have the wherewithal and the ability to do so, postshowrecaps.com slash Patreon. We are working our way up to, you know, various stops along the road to get to a thousand uh, patrons, whereby we <laughs> open up a community rewatch, which I know has been uh, very desirable for many people. So be one of those to help work towards that ultimate goal. Uh, let's make a federation of patrons, as it were. Yep. Well, add some more stars to the flag as time goes on. Like, <laughs> yeah, we have 300 plus right now, right? Yeah. I mean, it's starting to look like that that Federation flag for sure. Um, and yeah, we, we appreciate any kind of support you can give us. Patreon is just one of the ways to do it. The other mm-hmm. things you can do, you can certainly chat with us on social media. You can also rate and review us in the iTunes store, which is always a nice thing and helps kind of boost the podcast so it gets it into more ears, creates more patrons, creates more interaction, creates a better future for all of us. Um, you can reach us on the social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Haymaker Hattie. And same with me at a Mike Bloom type. Also, um, if you want to give a bump to this specific podcast feed, you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek. From there, you can find our Star Trek only feed. And that also includes past episodes where we covered Star Trek Picard, the short treks. As Jess said, we talked Lower Decks last week. So this is the hub for all things Star Trek. If you want to give us a rating and review, we would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you know, there are six flags on the Federation, uh, six stars on the Federation flag right now. Give us, you know, you can't get to six, but five would be nice for this feed as well. And also popping us up as the new Star Trek disco season comes up to give new people uh, some some eyes on what possible goodness could be coming into their ears in the year in the weeks to come. We want to explore some strange new ears, Mike. Yes, strange. Is that the, that's the newest show, right? That's uh, I mean, that is Spock, right? Strange new ears, quite literally. Indeed, indeed. That that man's got some ears on him. <laughs> All right, Mike. So I, I want to thank you once again for joining me on this wild and crazy journey through season three of Discovery, and I uh, want to thank everybody for tuning in. And we will be back in your ears at the end of next weekend with episode two. So thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>